Welcome back to Bible Time. We are in 1 Thessalonians. We looked at verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and today we're moving on into verse 6, and we'll cover uh, this concept is throughout the book of Thessalonians, and that is the concept of who are you following? Who are you following? Verse 6 says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us with understanding. Help me, Lord God, to be clear in my in the in my expressions, Father, to be able to say what you'd have me to say. Help me to hold my tongue whenever I need to hold my tongue. Help me just, Lord God, to be your servant, just to be your minister, Lord God, of your word. And I pray, Lord God, that this word would go with with power and with the Holy Ghost and with much assurance to the hearers today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here he says, ye became followers of us. Now the us we've already observed is Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus. And we talked about how Paul had introduced this letter to the church as this church born in trouble as just plain old Paul. One word and a comma. Paul, comma. That's it. And we talked about how unique that is in all of the epistles. There's no other place um, that I have found. Excuse me. There's no other place where Paul said, Paul, without including other aspects of his ministry and his authority. But here he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, and we observed that they, he was speaking to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that since that church was operating in the applied and practical position that they had found in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, he had no need to talk to them of authority structure and chain of command. He had no need to try and assure them of who they were because they were already there. They were living in the knowledge of their position and the practical application of their position in Christ. And that's been key throughout the whole beginning of our study of Thessalonians. And it really is key to understanding this book of the Bible and the following book of the Bible. (coughs) Excuse me. So here in verse 6, "...and ye became followers of us and of the Lord." Uh, This comes all the way down in verse 6 after everything that he said about the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, the church of Thessalonica followed God, and they followed God through the word of God that was spoken by the men that God sent. And they had their, their election and their calling of God delivered to them through the mouths of Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, the human instruments by which God sent the gospel to the church at Thessalonica. So they honored and revered Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus as the men who had brought them the gospel. By the way, whenever somebody is truly born again by the Spirit of God, they ought to have a degree of honor and respect for the people that God used to bring the gospel to them. And if that's not present, then it really begs the question of whether or not they found God at all. (coughs) Now, As one preacher said, we're just beggars. One beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And so we see that reflected, that idea reflected here in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, just beggars telling other beggars where they can get bread. And he didn't hold himself up in some kind of special authority. But any beggar worth his rags 
is going to be grateful to the other beggar that told him where he found bread. And he's going to highly esteem that beggar for coming and sharing that truth with him. But any beggar that's worth his rags is not going to bow down and do reverence and worship the other beggar. Any beggar that gets bread is going to thank the one that gave the bread, not the one that told them where somebody was giving the bread. Does that make sense? So the church then became followers of us, he said. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. They were in a battle there. It was a church born in trouble. The Jewish community at Thessalonica, by and large, seems to have rejected the gospel. I don't know numbers, and that's the only reason why I said seems. Because the Jews there, the unbelieving Jews, stirred up the city. And we know this um, as absolute fact from the book of Acts. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the city against the apostle and against his evangelistic band. And they even persecuted him into other cities. They followed him into Berea. And they tried to make trouble for him everywhere that they could find him. They hated Paul and they hated the gospel that he preached. And if they were making, sending mission trips to fight Paul in other cities, as we've observed before, how much more were they fighting the church that was left behind in Thessalonica? Which after three Sabbath days of reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogue, that church had been born by the power of the Holy Spirit and was now already in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the greatest battle that you will ever face in this life as a Christian after your salvation is the battle of leadership, also the battle of lordship in your soul and in your body. This is the battle of who gets to call the shots, who gets to be the boss of your life, who are you going to follow, who are you going to associate with. Once you yield to Christ, and you be for salvation, and you repent of your sin, then the next battle to be fought is battle for control of your ability to affect the lives of others. As soon as a man gets saved, that new creature in Christ is absolutely 100% perfectly sealed away from the devil's influence to get him into hell. Once saved, always saved, if... Once saved, if truly saved, not this fake junk out here. But if you're truly born again, you cannot get unborn. And someone who is born and dies, dies. They don't get unborn. You know, this crowd that says that you can lose your salvation, they say, oh, I got saved um, Sunday at church and then I got lost again and I went back and got saved again next week. They have such a, a base comprehension of the gospel that it makes it begs the question of whether or not they've ever been saved at all. And it's likely that they've not been if they believe that. Jesus promised eternal life. Jesus promised a new creature in Christ. But the Bible also says that every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So a born-again Christian then follows Christ and purifies himself even as he is pure. That new man 
man that is born, the Bible says, of God in John, in 1 John, cannot commit sin. That new creature is sinless and is perfect while that wicked flesh remains wicked. And the battle that then ensues is the battle between that wicked flesh that remains and the spirit that is created in true righteousness and true holiness, according to the word of God that has been taught by the Holy Spirit, according to Titus, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And that spirit that wants to follow God, and um, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That spirit then enters into the battle, that new creature spirit, little s spirit, enters into the battle with the devil over his own soul and body. The mind, the will, and the emotions of the man. These are now the battleground. And the devil wants to enter in through the different gates to your soul. The Bible says that your eyes are the window of your soul. And you look out the window of your soul through your eyes. That's an eye gate. The devil can, can, the devil can influence your soul through what you see with your eyes. The devil can put things in front of you to cause you fear, which is an emotion that you feel in your soul. It's an emotion, and it is not a spiritual reaction. It is a soulish reaction. Um, he can also excite, um, and not just the devil, the, the, the world around you can excite, excite admiration. It can excite lust. Uh, the devil loves to put things before your eyes that will excite lust. The devil wants you to see something nice and covet it. And he uses often the eye gate. The devil also uses the touch gate. Um, touch is a powerful thing. And what you feel can be a powerful thing. Even something as simple as your comfy bed can become a battle of immense spiritual proportions. As God is wooing you in your new Christian um, born-again condition to rise and spend time with God in the early hours. And I testify here of a battle that um, I need to have more victory over my and I covet your prayers in this area that God would grant me the discipline to rise every time the master calls me and not to tarry for any more sleep even if I think I'm tired or have a justifiable reason for staying in bed but that feeling those feelings then of the touch sensors that feel the softness of the bed and they feel the warmth of the bed and they feel the coldness of the air in the winter outside of the bed and they and then those touch things, the devil then uses that touch to try and tempt you and wages warfare against your spirit through your soul to try and control your body and keep you in bed and keep you from your quiet time with God. This is really simple and basic, right? Really simple. Your ear gate is another one. The devil will have things said to you. He'll send somebody to say something. I was just telling a, a man about the gospel um, not too long ago as I ate a late breakfast with my wife. We'd had to be out and run some errands and we stopped at a, a little diner and we got ourselves some breakfast there and this man was sitting there in despondency and the Lord prompted me to witness to him and I did and no sooner did I finish witnessing to him and sharing him that Jesus Christ had basically my testimony and the truth that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins and offers us eternal life with him and I told him that this is greater than any gift that ever could be given him greater than anything he could ever receive on this earth is the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers no sooner did I finish but 
the head waitress walked up and leaned on his table and began speaking to him about the lottery uh, gambling system and asking him if he had bought tickets for the hopes of winning millions of dollars and told him um, in no uncertain terms how his life would change forever if he won the lottery. And if she won it, she would even take him with her, which was a wicked and lewd thing to even suggest. And I sat there marveling at the devil, at the wickedness of the devil, and how the birds of the air had come in and swept up the seed as fast as it had been planted, as fast as that seed had fallen on that wayside soul who didn't really want to hear it. Here came the birds of hell and swept down and and ate up that seed and promised this man temporal riches in the hope of temporal good and temporal satisfaction instead of home in heaven for eternity with Christ. And that is the battle that is waging is a battle in the soul now the saved man being different from the lost man has the spirit of god living with him and in him and the new born again spirit that god has created a new creature created in true righteousness and true holiness that is now waging this battle and as you um, find yourself in this battle one of the great ways that satan has for ruining your effectiveness for christ is getting you to follow anyone instead of christ Jesus Christ alone is the one we should follow. He told the apostles, um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, as we follow Christ, God will bring people into our life that we should follow as they follow Christ. Not that we're following them um, independently of Christ, but rather that we are following them because we see them following Christ. And God has put it on our hearts that they are the ones to follow And as we follow Christ and we follow them, but not following them themselves, following Christ in them like a pastor of a church. When God gives you a church and it is God's will and God's plan for every born again believer to be in a Bible believing church with a Bible believing pastor. And if that pastor then is following Christ, you follow the pastor. And if he deviates from following Christ, you follow Christ with or without the pastor. So your first allegiance must be to Christ. And the way that you know that you're following Christ is through the word of God. Remember verse five, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in, in, um, I'm sorry, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So the word of God is that by which they knew that they were following God. And when Paul and Silvanus and Timothy has preached the word of God in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, they became followers of Paul, Silvanus and Timotheus. Not because they were following men with degrees, not because their mommy and daddy had always been Christians. In fact, none of their mommies and daddies had ever been Christians. Not because they were born that way, because none of them had been. Christianity was brand new. None of them were born in a church so to speak. But they became followers of Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus because the gospel came not unto them in word only, but also empowered in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And then again, this verse in chapter two that we just cannot get away from, um, verse 13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, 
the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And then look at the next verse in, in chapter two. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea. So now you might say, well, here's an example of a church submitting to a, uh, er, a older church. Well, look at what he says in the rest of the verse. The churches of God, which are in Judea, are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So this following, as you read the context, is plainly a not a following of leadership, but rather a follow of generational following in the same footsteps, in the sense that whenever um, Daniel Boone blazed a trail into Kentucky from Tennessee, other men followed Daniel Boone and went into Kentucky. And many of them, after Daniel Boone was dead and gone, went through. And not too long ago, a few years ago, we ourselves drove through a great big wide highway right through the Cumberland Gap in between Kentucky and Tennessee. And it was along the same area that Daniel Boone had blazed the first trail. And in that sense of historical generational events and circumstances, we were followers of Daniel Boone. And here he says, these guys have become followers of the churches of Judea, but here he's giving no judicial authority whatsoever to the church at Jerusalem. Instead, what he is doing is he's saying, you have suffered like they have suffered. They suffered from their countrymen. You suffered from your countrymen. They suffered at the hands of the Jews. You're suffering at the hands of the Jews. He's saying, you're on the old paths. You're going the right direction. You're in a similar path, in a similar vein. You are doing the same things, going the same way, believing the same God, um, following the same instructions, getting the same results, and having the same grace of God to overcome the affliction that is besetting you. He's telling them, you're not strangers to this. This isn't a different situation or a weird situation that's happening here today. You're not weird, he's saying to them. You're not, you're not blazing a new trail. You're following the path that God has laid out before the church of Jesus Christ. And that was a comfort to them, and that was the purpose of that exhortation. But nowhere in there do you find any transfer of authority where they were supposed to answer to this other church. And in fact, this is something that we can see today. The Bible says to seek out the old paths and walk therein. And if you walk in an old path that somebody else has already walked in, then you, in a sense, follow those who've gone on before you. But if you are following them instead of following Christ, you're not on the old path. So therefore, you're not following them as they followed Christ anymore. Does that make sense? Do you hear me today? <clears throat> You may think, oh, I'm going to follow uh, Paul. I'm going to follow Apollos. I'm going to follow Cephas. And you start out on that trail following after these men that you believe followed Christ. But because you're not following Christ, you're not following those men at all. You're blazing your own trail. Or you follow, you're following some other religious trail of some other man that said that they were following Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And that's a very common mistake that happens today. The closer that you get to Christ, the more subtle Satan must be. But he will be subtle enough to deceive you. Did you hear what I just said? 
No matter how close you get to God, the devil's going to try to knock you off the old paths. And the closer you get, the more subtle the devil is going to be. Listen, I'm going to say this again. The more subtle he will be, but you will never get so close to Christ that the devil is not subtle enough to deceive you. The Bible says that when the Antichrist comes to this earth and begins his evil deeds, whenever he, before he's revealed even, that he would deceive if it were possible, even the very elect. The devil is smarter than you, and you need to figure that out right now. Do you hear me? The devil is wiser than you. The devil has more experience than you. The devil knows more history than you do, and he knows it more accurately than you do because he witnessed it. Now, the devil did not, has not lived forever. The devil cannot be in all places at all times. The devil is a limited, created being. And Jesus Christ said, I beheld Satan fall from heaven as lightning. Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than the devil. The devil is not infinitely greater than you, but he's a lot greater than you in a lot of ways. But Christ is infinitely greater than the devil. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. God will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation give you a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. The devil is cruel and strategically evil. Do you hear me today? And if you will study um, true history, not just the CNN garbage and all that stuff out there, but if you'll look at real true history back down through the ages, you'll find a common theme. And that is throughout the ages, depraved man has done the same wicked, vile, evil, cruel things to other people that depraved man has always done. It doesn't matter what time in history you go to. It doesn't matter what kind of advancements of science were available or unavailable it doesn't matter what kind of weapons were available or unavailable from the t- from in places and times where men have nothing but their bare hands and sticks and stones to times and places where people have all the power of modern medicine and um, all of the electronic and technological advancements of this day man has always done wicked things to other men and it is through the work of the devil who is cruel and strategically evil. Now, the devil has two main approaches to knock you off course and make you a follower of anything and anybody besides Christ. Do you know what his two main courses, his two main um, strategies are? His categories, his two main strategies. Let's have two of you stand up here, right here, and I'll show you the two main strategies right here. His first strategy looks like this balled up fist going right into your gut. Okay, and no, I didn't really hit the guy. He's grinning for those of you that can only hear. But it looks like a fist going into the gut. It's force, might, cruelty, punishment, suffering. It's the shackles. It's the, it's the crescent. It's the star of the communist Soviet Union. It's the pain and the suffering and the torture of the torture and prison camps and the death camps. But the other way, you can have your seat. The other way that he comes to you is like this. And he puts his arm right around you. And he comes as a minister of light. And often he'll use the two side by side. You can have a seat. There's a thing with police interrogations where they have a saying that they'll use the good cop, bad cop strategy. 
they'll send in a mean old policeman. Now, in the United States of America, there are a lot of laws governing how the police can interrogate, and we're grateful to God for that. There's other places in the world where the police are basically unrestrained, and they can do very many horrible things to people, which is a wicked thing. God hates that. But so the policeman comes in, and he slams his fist on the counter, and he gets over the top of the table, and he yells and spits and screams and and just rages with a purple face in the face of the suspect and that guy's shaking in his boots shaking like a leaf and that man keeps yelling and beating on the table and making a big noise to try and get that man to tell him the truth and then he walks out and that man's sitting there still shaking and in walks a nice looking policeman maybe a beautiful police woman and sits down across the table and reaches across the table and folds her hands nicely and looks with big brown puppy dog eyes into his face and says, now I really don't think that you're the one that did it and it wasn't your fault. But if you'll just tell me something that can help me to figure out the truth, I'll do my best to help you. And that guy just starts spilling the beans all over the place and telling everything that he possibly knew. And the whole time, the mean guy is standing back there drinking his coffee and chuckling behind the glass watching it. Because the girl works with him and knew the whole time, and she was standing behind the glass watching him yell. And they planned the whole thing. Good cop, bad cop, 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 cop. Good cop, bad cop attack. Now, the devil will do the same thing. The devil will use force and cruelty. He'll put you in the face of somebody that's slamming their paganism down your throat. And they're showing you the vile wickedness of sin. And they're calling you names and they're slamming the door. And then the devil will come in right around the corner with an angel like a minister of light. So beautiful, so calm, so peaceful, so wonderful. And apart from the grace of God, you'll fold up in her arms or his arms and follow them off of the old paths, off of the beaten path of, to the old rugged cross that Christ has commanded you to follow him in. Lord, help us today. To not run out of time. I have a little missionary story I'm going to tell you about this very thing today, Lord willing. Now, um, let's look at a couple more verses before we go on. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6 quickly. Quickly, quickly. 2 Corinthians 6. Be not, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Now, in case you don't know what he means by that, for what fellowship, he goes on to say, hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? An infidel means an unbeliever. An impenitent, obdurate unbeliever. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says, I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Son of God, head over all things to the 
the church. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. Do you notice the distance that he's using in these phrases? He's saying, you come out of them. Well, that means he's not in there with them. And he's saying, be separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you, which means that he will not receive you while you are not separate. If you are going to walk hand in hand with the unclean thing, with the temple of, with, with Belial, with um, idols, if you're going to walk hand in hand with these, then you have to relinquish your hold on Christ. Do you hear me today? That's Bible. He says, wherefore, come out from among from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Lowercase spirit. Now he's not talking about filthiness of the new created being that cannot sin. He's creating, he's talking about filthiness of evil spirits. There are many spirits gone out into the world the bible says therefore try the spirits whether they be of god and he's saying cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit you see there's a filthiness of the flesh that's pretty obvious but then there is a spiritual wickedness of evil spirits and their heresies and their cultic practices that we are to cleanse ourselves from and have no fellowship with and he says perfecting holiness in the fear of god and then there to the corinthian church he says receive us we have wronged no man we have corrupted no man and that there in first um, Thessalonians he says you our entrance into you was not in vain and speaks of how they received them because they were the messengers of God go to Colossians 2 18 we studied this one out recently beware lest any man beguile you of your reward through a voluntary humility through a voluntary humility, I've got to find my spot here so I can get the rest of it, and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Let no man beguile you of your reward. In a voluntary humility, that means bringing you under a yoke of bondage to them, bringing you into an association with them that will break your fellowship with God in favor for your fellowship with them <clears throat> he says and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of god now we studied that out i encourage you to go back look up the reference colossians 2 verse 18 on bible time and look out that um, look at that passage we went in depth on that subject and i encourage you to look at it again also study it in the word of god jesus christ um, desires you to follow him. Satan will tell you that if you were humble, you would follow those men and those women that come to you as ministers of light. Satan will tell you that it is your pride that makes you stay separate. Satan will tell you that you are being divisive. Satan will tell you that you are being uh, causing schisms in the body because you will not fellowship with the works of darkness, and Satan is a liar. Satan uh, wants you to get off of the old paths, and he'll do anything he can to get you off those paths. Go to Second John quickly. Second John. 
Um, and we'll look at verse five. And now I beseech thee, lady, speaking to the church and using the word lady to denote the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, and that is what I believe that to be, though we cannot study that out in detail today. Um, and that's supported by scripture. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And there's that love. And here comes Satan saying, if you love the Lord and love your brethren, you'll put up with these lies and you'll put up with these heresies. He says, and this is love that we walk after his commandments. What did he just say was loved? Everybody tell me. That's right, that we walk after his commandment. That as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, of course, we've studied this. The word Jesus is God in the flesh, the Son of God. The word Christ is um, God of the Old Testament become a babe in the manger at Bethlehem. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born his name should be called unto us the son is given his name should be called the everlasting father the mighty god the prince of peace jesus christ fully god fully man is is what that means whenever it says jesus christ fully god in christ fully man in jesus the two together evidence the reality of the incarnation of the word of God that was in the beginning with God and was God himself. Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Anyone, any spirit, any deceiver that will not confess this, he says, is a deceiver and an antichrist. And he brings up the reward again, like Colossians. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now the doctrine of Christ is the fact of who Christ is, that he is the word of God from the beginning. It's the fact of the incarnation of Christ, that he who that He became a man, um, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldst not but a body, hast thou prepared me. Uh, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O Lord. Uh, and that's Jesus Christ coming receiving a body it speaks of the doctrine of the sinless perfection of jesus christ that he was in all points tempted yet without sin it speaks of his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins that as a lamb led to the slaughter so was he done before his captors his shearers and he came and he laid down his life for us all greater love hath no man than this but that a man lay down his life for his friends and that he died on that cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day this is the doctrine of Christ and that he showed himself to the disciples and the apostles and that he commissioned them with the gospel to go into all the world and preach the gospel and that he promised them the promise of the Father and told them to tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And then they went there and they did that and they received the power from on high and went on preaching Christ. Anyone that usurps the doctrine of Christ, anyone that comes in and substitutes the doctrine of Christ that sends people another way than the doctrine of Christ is a deceiver and an antichrist. He says, look that you receive not your reward. 
or that you lose not your reward, the things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. He says, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, these that bring not the doctrine of Christ would include some popular groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses who have not the Son. They claim they have the Father, but they say Jesus is not the Son of, He's not God in the flesh. He is the Son of God, and they somehow separate those things and deny the deity of Christ. And they've transgressed from the doctrine of Christ. The Mormon Church does not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They believe that He's the brother of Satan, an equally created being like an angel that ascended to some kind of higher plane. Well, the Bible is clear that Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God and was God before he ever became a man. He was God and then he became a man. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he did that through the death on the cross. And that church completely usurps that doctrine. Now these ones are more obvious. There are others that are less obvious. There is a church that teaches in its doctrine that there is a man that is the head of the church who is the vicar of Christ and that you must take the sacraments and take and go to the church and be baptized by the church and that they somehow have a part in your redemption. They believe in Jesus Christ, they say. They tell you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They affirm the deity of Christ. They say he was, they might even go so far as to say he was fully God and fully man. But then they deny the work of Jesus Christ alone in the salvation of his soul. And they substitute the sacraments for the cross of Calvary. And they sacrifice they supplement the Pope for the headship of Christ over the church and they supplement the prayers to Mary for the intercessory work of Jesus Christ and the place, the way that we have been that has been made through us through the veil that is the flesh of Jesus Christ into the holiest of all and that group is the Catholic Church of all stripes and that church does not have the doctrine of Christ. Now, right here, I lost a bunch of people because you've all bought into it and you've been beguiled and you've been brought into voluntary humility to a group that does not hold the doctrine of Christ. They claim the doctrine of Christ with one hand, but just as readily, they claim exact opposite doctrines with the other hand and they teach both side by side. When they talk to somebody who believes the Bible, they agree with the doctrines of Christ verbally with their lips, but as soon as they get back in their church house, they start teaching other doctrines and offering meat sacrifice to idols called the sacraments, also known as the mass, which is an idolatrous feast. And then they teach everybody to idolatry, uh, do idolatry, which God has forbidden. Now, second, first Corinthians five, nine, go there quickly. So those are three groups and there's many, many more. And this continues to get even more subtle. The closer you get to God, the more subtle the devil's attacks are and the more subtle he'll come. You'll have a church that will substitute for the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary death and the fact that he said that by one spirit you're all baptized into one body. They will substitute a physical manifestation that they call speaking in tongues that does not have substantiable proof in the word of God and they will say that if you do not do that their way, that you are not saved and you must speak in tongues. They've changed the gospel to repent and speak in tongues, lest ye perish. 
and they have subverted the doctrine of Christ. Now, this gets really sticky because the deeper you get into the subtlety of Satan, the more mixing happens and the more subtle and undermining these false doctrines will be mixed in. Um, there's another doctrine that has usurped the doctrine of Christ, and that is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Church of Christ preaches that you must be baptized to be saved. They say you got to repent, you got to believe the God, you got to believe the gospel, but then you've got to get baptized. And if you don't get baptized our way, you're going to go and bust hell wide open. And they have departed from the doctrine of Christ. The Bible says, "Be ye not unequally yoked together." with unbelievers he says what fellowship hath christ with belial now this is totally flies in the face with the ecumenical interfaith movement that is common in our day but nevertheless it's bible and it's true first corinthians 5 says here in verse 9 i wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters for then ye must needs go out of the world but now i have written unto to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one no not to eat he said you can't even eat with these guys now the guy that's an idolater at the buddhist temple and he's bowing down to a fat man doing the lotus uh, that guy i can go eat with him He's a lost man, and like Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, I'll be a friend of that sinner, and I'll go eat with him. I'll have a barbecue if that works out, and have him over and talk to him about Jesus, and feed him up real good, and just befriend him as best I can, so that I have the opportunity to share the love of Christ with that man. The greatest love and friendship that you can ever express to any individual is to tell them the truth of their need for a Savior, and of the reality that that Savior is Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing minus nothing and that salvation is by grace through faith in the name of Christ and if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ they will be saved as I have been saved and that it's not about race it's not about religion it's not about color it's not about um, economic class it's about your relationship with almighty God that you as a sinner have been able to have had a way made for you to be reconciled to God through the death of the cross and the blood of the Lamb of God Jesus Christ that was shed for the sin of all the men of the whole world so that whosoever will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But if you reject this gospel, you will die and burn in a devil's hell. Now, hell doesn't belong to the devil. It was made for the devil. It's the final judgment of the devil. So it's not his by right. It's his by judgment. And that's a mix-up. This world needs to get straight. So first... Um, uh, so here are idolaters. Now we in our human reasoning, we'll look over at a Catholic priest and at least he's got a cross and at least he says the name of Jesus and we feel more comfortable around a Catholic priest than a Buddhist. Do you hear me today? Because he's got a cross and because they talk about the Bible and they talk about Jesus and so it makes us more comfortable. We feel more comfortable around a Buddhist priest than a... Um, Oh, I, the name escaped me, but I was thinking of a, a faction of Hindus who believed in a god of murder, the Tugs. 
the tugs. Back in the day of the British colonialization, the British fought many battles to stamp out the tuggy religion, which was a bat, which was a religion of murder. In order to get to heaven, you had to murder people, and they fought those people. Well, we're not very comfortable around those guys, and they have an ugly goddess that. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to blaspheme your goddess in any way um, in your mind because I don't want to shut your mind up to the truth of the gospel. But your goddess is impotent anyway. They have this they, they have this goddess that they bow down to and that they worship and we look at that extreme paganism and we recoil from it naturally that is the bad cop do you hear me that's the bad cop that's the fist in your gut if you see a half naked indian man creeping through the shadows of night with a big long knife in between his teeth and a rag in his hands that he intends to choke you with to death you're not going to want to go to church with him am i right that's the bad cop side of Satan. And he's got that side. And it's ugly as hell itself. But then he's got the minister of light side. Where the man's standing in his white robe with a crucifix. And he's got incense. And he's got crosses. And he has the little statue of Mary. And he says that you're supposed to pray to her. And, um, and that all this other stuff that they do. And come and take their idolatrous mass. And, he, and it's, guess what? They've departed from the doctrine of Christ. Now, the Bible says that if any man is an idolater, that we're not to eat with such a one. We're to be separate from such a one. Whenever you run into someone who calls himself a brother, someone who says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but their practices defy Christ and show that they are antichrist and deceivers, the word of God is plain that we must separate from them. Who are you following today? That's the question that we're asking. Now, go back to first Thessalonians we'll run through this um Lord help us today help me to know exactly what to do first Thessalonians we'll get to that missionary story next I believe I want to tell you a missionary story a powerful missionary story and I'll recommend the book to you um, when I'm done with it so that you can get it for yourself and read it First uh, Thessalonians um, 2 and verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Now you see here in verse 4, one of the main um, attacks of the devil with the good cop idea, with the angel of light idea. Instead of the fist in the gut, he comes to you with words that please men. He comes to you with words that tickle your ears. He learns how to say things in a way that you can accept them and give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to confess something to you today. I have, in my human nature, an extreme desire for people to like me. And in that extreme desire that I have for people to like me, I have a nearly insane ability to justify the deeds and actions of people that have made themselves um, likable to me. Do you hear me today? Somebody gets me to like them and I will bend over backwards to give them the benefit of the doubt in almost anything that they do or say. And I recognize that as a problem. Do you know how I recognize that as a problem? 
I've gotten burned by it many, many times. And by God's grace, I'm trying hard not to get burned again. But I am susceptible whenever somebody expresses loyalty to me, whenever somebody shows that they care about me, I will, in my human nature, bend over almost all the way backwards for them. I will do almost anything for them. I will sacrifice for them. I'll back them up. I'll fight for them. I'm for them because... They're for me and the enemy of my enemy is my friend and this guy's showing himself my friend so he can't be my enemy and that's not always true. Just because somebody says they're your friend doesn't mean that they're your friend. They might be the worst enemy you ever had because the enemy that comes flying a swastika, doing the goose step, screaming death and hatred is easily identified as an enemy. But the enemy that comes into you is an angel of light in religious trappings and putting his arm around your shoulder and trying to lead you along with him is an enemy that you may miss until it's too late, until he has brought you off on a side path away from the old path so first we have words that please men look at verse 5 neither at any time used we flattering words oh I'm a sucker for flattering words it's just a fact so I try hard not to even listen to them and the devil knows I'm a sucker for it so I'm not telling anybody anything that um, will advance them because the devil's used it on me and it's worked before and here come these flattering words he says as you know nor a cloak of covetousness Ooh, that one gets me too the reality is i'm just a fallen human being with a sin nature and i'm very susceptible to the attacks of the devil and i'm desperately desperately dependent on the lord jesus christ and the word of god to keep me from straying from the old paths i have no other hope than that god keep me by his grace through his word Look at this other one. This one's a good one, too. It gets me, too. They all get me. Um, Nor of men sought we glory. You hear that? Glory seeking. Somebody comes along and they use a little flattering words and a cloak of covetousness and they build you up and you start to get and they give you glory and they give you a little honor and they elevate you a little bit. And next thing you know, you are ready to lap milk from their hands if they asked you to or kiss the ring on their finger, Mr. Pope. And you'll do just whatever they ask you to do to get a little bit of their glory shed on you. And that's what he's saying here that these that they did not use in Thessalonians. These are the um, attacks of the enemy. First, the church at Corinth were followers of Christ. Or I'm sorry, of Thessalonica. Followers of Christ. Then they were followers of those who brought them to Christ as those men followed Christ. And then they were followers on the old paths in the sufferings of the churches that had gone on before them. And they could mark, listen, this is how you know your church is a true church right here. By being followers in the sufferings of the early church. You can find the original church and it's marked by a trail of blood from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven. From in fact the time he died on the cross as the head of the church to the time that he will come back from glory to catch up his bride to meet him in the air. Jesus Christ's church has been marked by a trail of blood, a trail of persecution, a trail of tribulation, a trail of privation, a trail of mocking, a trail of scorning, a trail of disinterest, a trail of attack, a trail of intrigue, a trail of false accusation. You can find the church. Look for her. Follow the trail of blood. You'll find her. The 
one shedding the blood is obviously not the church, as, and which is the Roman Catholic Church and the other churches of her like, the other daughters of the great harlot, spiritual harlot, drunk on the blood of the saints. Read the Fox's Book of Martyr for Christ's sake, if you don't believe me, and get some real history for once. Um, Martyr's Mirror would be another one that's very, um, very much focused on the Anabaptists. A couple books there, and there's others beside that. He says in verse 8, Now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Then verse 11, he says, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ um, direct our way unto you. So there he's evidencing that he himself, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, were following Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he, he prays that God would establish their hearts. He's not wanting these people to be wishy-washy. He wants them to be followers of Christ and to maintain the course that they're on. Chapter 4, verse 1 talks about how ye ought to walk. Chapter 5, 22 says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Who are you following today? Now we're going to dive into this missionary story just a little bit here. We'll have a few Bible references, and then we will finish up. Now this story is Evidence Not Seen, a book written by Darlene Dibler Rose about her experiences in the Guineas in the, of Netherlands during the Second World War. And she had a terrible time of it, and I'm not going to go into all the details. Um, this is a very heavy read, and I would recommend it, especially for high schoolers and up. Um, but you do what the Lord leads you there. And this woman had a spiritual mentor. His name was um, Jaffray. I probably didn't say that right. Jaffray. And Mr. Jaffray was spent much, much time with her. In fact, more time than her husband. He was an old man, and her husband was pioneering trails into the jungles of Guinea to try and reach people with the gospel who had never been reached as far as they were aware. And in that very difficult and trying set of circumstances, she would often have to stay behind and help at the mission headquarters while her husband was away. And this older man, along with his wife and daughter, who was in her 40s, became spiritual mentors and friends to Darlene Dibler Rose. Um, when the Japanese took over the Guineas, they came with force and with cruelty, and very quickly they, they gathered up all the men who could work and took them to a labor camp where they put them in extremely difficult situations with very little food. They were very, very cruel to them. The, the bad cop side of Satan, the punch in the gut side, the beating, them to, beating some of the men literally to death torturing them, hurting them, um, get, letting them be very, very sick and not giving them the things that they needed. Um, for some time, Darlene and her friends had some peace and some safety, but the day came whenever they finished the women's labor camp and they came to pick up Darlene and, the, and old Mr. Jaffray and his wife and daughter and they herded them together with 1,600 other women and children into a barbed wire enclosed set of barracks in a giant compound where they had to um, raise pigs and chickens for the Japanese army. They had to knit socks, darn socks for the Japanese army. They had to do all all this labor and keep up their labor quotas. They had 
rough boards to sleep on. They had no protection from much of the elements. They were dirty. They were unkept. They were disease-ridden. They gave them very little food. It was a very, very difficult time. Sicknesses ravaged through the camp. But this lady of faith, Darlene Dibler Rose, her story is a very powerful story. And she became a light to that whole area, that whole place. And they made her a barracks leader of one of the eight barracks which is going to have about 200 people in it. And she was a barracks leader, and she would read the Bible and pray with her barracks every night, and she was soon had in reputation. She was not had in reputation because of her scholarly finesse. She was like the Thessalonican church. It says here, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now I'm going to kind of spoil the book a little bit telling you some of these things. But the Japanese commander of that women's camp was a violent man who had beaten a man to death before he even came to that camp. Just violently, murderously beat a man to death because he was mad at him. You can talk about the bad cop. That was what you got. And this man was very violent and very aggressive, though in those days people had more restraint, um, some kind of restraint towards women. And he did have a little bit of restraint towards women, but he was not, he was willing to use his cane and his fist and even his boots on those women and even on the younger um, teenagers. And so he was a very violent, very mean man. But through the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit of God, this woman, Darlene Dibler Rose, living there in a terrible condition, dirty, um, near emaciated, struggling with diseases, having to slave labor in a labor camp for that wicked man and his wicked army, led that man to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the love of God and the power of the radiance of the joy of the Holy Ghost in the midst of the affliction and the anguish and the sorrowing and the death and the privation and the hunger and the separation from her own husband and all those other people's separation with more than enough reason to get bitter and become useless for God. Instead, the very thing that should have broke her was the catalyst for that commander's salvation. When the news reached her that her husband husband had died because of the wicked behavior and the cruel treatment of the Japanese army in the other camp. That Japanese commander had watched her faith and he called her into the office to tell her how much those other women needed her. And he said, don't lose your smile. And she said, can I share, can I speak freely with you? She asked permission. He said, yes. And she shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with that man. And the tears ran down his face until finally he got up and went in the other room and she could hear him weeping and blowing his nose and weeping some more. And finally, even though it was against protocol, to leave without permission she realized he wasn't coming back out and she went away back to her labors in the camp and it wasn't till possibly two years later that she realized that Christ had saved that man at some point along that way and the change was evident in that man's life that is a powerful story isn't it that is a powerful story about that time Mr. Jaffray her spiritual mentor was 
um, feeling he was a very godly man. He could see, he had a way of knowing things before they happened. He walked so close with God that God would give him hints about things. And often he would be able to um, almost predict what was happening after his times with the Lord. And she really looked up highly to Mr. Jaffray. Now, Mr. Jaffray um, began to be very lonely for her husband, Russell, and he left to go to, um, well, he left because they made him leave, but God had shown him that, and here he goes, leaving for the other camp, the men's camp, and he was an old man with many health issues, and she knew he was likely to die and likely would never see him again. But there he went off joyfully, and he leaned out of the back of the truck, and he told her, Darlene, whatever you do, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he left. And there went her spiritual mentor. There went the man that she had leaned on for spiritual support through years of separation from her husband. There went the man that she had um, shared fellowship with and had looked up to, and it left a vacuum in her life. She says in the book that September brought a new personality. I'm not going to read out of the book because I don't want to infringe copyright. I'll just tell you the basic idea of it. And she names a man, Father Bell, an American Catholic priest. And this Father Bell came into the camp and he was a help to the camp. He was able to do some things to help them. They were so bad off and that some of them were struggling with severe anemia and they had nothing that they could use for it. And they had a pretty disgusting solution for it, but they were grateful for it. And you can can read about it yourself in the book. But here comes this Father Bell. Now I'm just going to tell you right up front, this is the good cop of Satan. You've got the wicked commander and all the mean guards. Well now here comes the good one, the minister of light. Right here most people are ready to shut me off. You see at the time that this book was written, the um, Christianity by and large had united for over 50 years in a concerted effort to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying desperately to put aside their differences and to work together. They said, we've just got to reach the lost. Let's forget about our minor differences. Let's forget about our difference in polity. Let's forget about our difference in how we see things. And let's just take the gospel of Jesus to everyone. And here about this time in the 1940s especially, there was a surge of confidence being put in the Roman Catholic Church that is altogether unexplainable if you know history at all. And some of you just want to shut me off. I just ask you to listen to me carefully. You see, the Catholic Church had been the bad cop for a thousand years. Um, using the fire, using the sword, using the prison to convert whoever they wanted to convert. They were known for their jihad against the Muslims. Jihad was, is a Muslim thing, but it's also a Catholic thing. They are both from the same tree. They are both false religions. They both deny Jesus Christ. Now, which one are you more comfortable with? You're more comfortable with the Catholic, most of you, because they've got the little cross and all that kind of stuff, and they say some of the same things that we do, but they don't believe a lick of it like we do. They believe another gospel completely, another gospel. They believe that you're saved by Jesus Christ and the church and Mary, and if you miss any of that if you don't go through the church there is no salvation for you outside the church you say i know catholics that don't believe that then they have betrayed their catholic faith because that is what the pope says and that's what the doctrines of the catholic church state and according to the doctrines of the catholic church they're going to spend a long time in purgatory burning that kind of garbage out of them that they said they didn't believe that you say well i don't believe that either well who gets to make you the big boss that says what's true and what's not you get to tell me what a catholic is whenever they say what they are 
What's, what's got into people today that you think that you can define things the way that you want to define them? All right, so anyway, the Catholics have a whole nother gospel, a whole nother Jesus. They think you have to take the sacraments to be saved. You have to be baptized by, um, as a Catholic to be saved. Now, there are some individual Catholics who have differences of opinion, but they're, again, they're going to suffer for their differences of opinion in purgatory if they're right about anything. And there is no purgatory in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying this to pick on Catholics, but I want you to see the angel, the minister of light that came into this story. So here he came and he helped the people. Now, he had come from Per Per, the camp where the men were. And so the other women would gather around him asking for information. But the Holy Spirit, she said, checked her. Now, she felt like that was for the welfare later of the priest and of these other people because the priest was not allowed to tell her about her husband because he had died. She didn't know that yet, and the Japanese had classified that fact because they knew that what they were doing was very, very wrong. Now, when word finally came through, I want you to hear this today. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to infringe the copyright laws, but you can go ahead and read the book and go to chapter 7 and the start there. And Father Bell had a communion service, and at the end of the service, Father Bell got an intuition. Now, Mr. Jaffray had gotten intuitions, and they were right on. But Mr. Jaffray was a man of God, and he had the evidence of being a man of God. And here this man gets an intuition that someone in the camp is going to need prayer, and he basically asked everyone that needed knows how to pray to pray. Now again, the Catholic Church teaches, they say pray. They say prayer matters. They teach people to pray. But their definition of prayer is very different from the Bible's definition. When they say pray, they're talking about going through the priests, going through Mary, going through the saints, and getting mediatorial work from other dead people that will get you through to Jesus and through to God. And they have inserted themselves as a middleman. The Bible says the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. And their prayers, whenever a Catholic says that they pray, what they're saying is that they go through idolatrous rituals that is what they are doing now they don't believe that they're doing that but that is what they are doing they are they are blasphemously praying to mary and to the saints instead of to christ alone as Jesus Christ clearly taught. So the Catholic does not pray acceptable prayers to God. Now, God was allowing this to happen to Darlene. He was allowing her to go through an extremely difficult trial of her faith. This Catholic priest, having some kind of precognitive intuition that turned out right, in no way validates the priest who is violating Scripture by even his name, his office, and also every practice that he does. This idolatrous priest, this prophet of Baal, needs to be saved by the blood of Jesus and repent of his idolatry and turn to Christ alone. Now, As the story progressed, he ended up um, being able to break the news to a lady there. And then she was able to pass that news on to Miss Darlene, Mrs. Darlene Dibler. So this priest, this Catholic priest, tells Darlene Dibler um, about her husband. And in in the process of this, she began to give him some credibility. She began to feel like he had credibility. Um, Following this event, they had an afternoon carol sing and worship on Christmas. And Father Bell was a good speaker. So they let Father Bell get up and speak. And so he got up and he said, I'm going to tell you a story. Again, I'm not reading from the book for sake of copyright, but you can get the book and read it yourself. 
But he told him, I'm going to tell you a story that was told that I heard for the first time in Pear Pear in the men's labor camp. He says, the one that related the story to me was Reverend C. Russell, Dibler, which is Darlene Dibler's husband. Now, I want you to think about what I was saying about the good cop, bad cop. The, the bad cop, he comes with the punch in the gut, and the devil sends those guys in to knock you out of the path and get you away from God, and they're hard and they're wicked and they're mean and they attack you directly and in your face. But the good cop, the ministers of light that the devil sends, they come up beside you, and they get your confidence, and they get you to place your hope in them, and they get you to give them credibility and to listen to them and feel like you can get help from them. And here's this man that has not only shared with her about her husband's death, but he seemed to have intuition before it happened that she needed prayer and he asked the Catholic Church to pray for her. How about them apples? And so she's starting to give him credibility. And it says here that in this um, Christmas service, he tells this story that had been related by Reverend C. Russell Dibler, her husband who died in the other labor camp. You see how Satan is cruel. He's reaching into the heart of this woman. Here is a woman that God has put in a prison camp, in a labor camp, under Japanese control, suffering privation, disease, but in the midst of it all, she has been a light for Jesus Christ. She has shown brightly. She's been able to lead the prison commander to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the whole camp is looking up to her. And so what happens next? Out goes old Mr. Jaffrey, who was her mentor, and in the devil's sins, Father Bell. I know some of you want to shut me off right now because you say, you're saying the devil sent that Catholic priest. Absolutely he sent that Catholic priest. The Catholic priest works for the devil. There's no two ways about it. Look at what they believe. Look at what they teach. It is doctrines of devils. Now, here's this Father Bell, and he goes on and he tells this story. I'm going to lose some people here too. And it's the story of the other wise man. This is an extra biblical story. It is a very... um, is a very emotionally moving story. It's a very powerful story. This extra biblical drama, though, is unprofitable. And oh, how the tender hearts are drawn to such. But the story is fictional, powerless, and therefore all the more endearing as it gives its hearers emotional tingles without any power to truly affect them for Christ. The story ends with a message that can be as equally affecting and moving to a Catholic pagan as a true believer in Jesus Christ, but leaves each in his place. The story ends with this last wise man, a fourth wise man, a fictional wise man, laying in the dust of Jerusalem, his head caved in by a rock from the wall as Jesus has breathed his last life. And and then Jesus meets him there and speaks to him completely unbiblical. There's no biblical foundation for this. And this guy is laying there with his head caved in and and he says, Lord, when did I see you naked and clothed you? When did I see you hungry and fed you and the Lord Jesus says in as much as you've done it unto the least to me you've done it unto the unto the least of these you've done it unto me which is Bible but the application can be made to any religion the Catholic religion of works can listen to that story and say look at that my masses God's going to remember my masses he's going to remember my prayer beads he's going to remember my offerings he's going to remember the incense he's going to remember the candles that I burned at the watches and the vigils he's going to remember all my good deeds 
seeds and he's going to bring me into heaven with him. And there's never in this whole story any reference to sin and righteousness and judgment, which is the ministry of the Holy Ghost with which God convicts men and saves their souls. So it leaves people tickly and fuzzy feeling and happy about their religion, whatever religion it is. Do you hear me today? This is the ecumenical movement. This is the whole idea behind the interfaith movement, mingling all the faiths. You take some of what Jesus said that can be misconstrued without the rest of the context by any religion, and you tell it. So here she says everybody in the room was had um, wet tears running down their cheeks. And I'm not mocking her one moment. But look at how cruel the devil is. He comes in here with this emotional story that she doubtless knew already, having probably read it with her husband, and says that her husband had told the story, and he tells it in front of everybody. It's this big moving moment. What is happening here? Here is the light that God ordained to be the light to this, um, what is it, Kampali prison camp, labor camp in in New Guinea. And here is the missionary that God has sent and ordained for that work. And she's been a bright and a burning light. And now the devil sends in Mr. Good Cop Father Bell. And here he comes and he is beginning through her yielding to him. Through her giving him voluntary humility. Through her acknowledging his goodness without saying anything about his idolatrous lies. She is letting the devil shift confidence from her to him in the minds and the hearts of all the people God has sent her to. God in his mercy and grace is long suffering with us. There's a, and there is a great movement right now among these mission societies. It started all the way back then to accept the Roman Catholic cult as one of us. This has given birth to the interfaith movement, which now includes Mormons and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and so-called church services respecting their faith. With quotations there. Such an attitude is altogether unscriptural. Second Corinthians 6, we just read, um, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what, what fellowship hath Christ with Belial? That passage is clear, and it is there are others in, with it in Scripture. What agreement hath God, that goes on to say, with the temple of God with idols? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? The church house is not the temple of God. The body of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. The believer in Jesus Christ is the temple of God and the believers gathered together as lively stones make up the temple of God and whenever believers of the Lord Jesus Christ yoke up with the idolatrous Roman Catholic Church or other factions that have perverted the doctrine of Christ and left the doctrine of Christ then we have fellowship between the temple of God and with idols and God says what fellowship can Christ have with Belial and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols for ye are the temple of the living God as God hath said I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate saith the Lord and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty now God had a plan for this wonderful missionary woman this godly missionary woman 
um, here the Lord was allowing Darlene a greater trial of faith than I can begin to understand in empathy, though I understand it in sympathy. And my heart aches under the heavy load of this awful trial, even knowing the happy outcome. The devil's ministers are angels of light, and these Catholic wizards and witches are no exception. Be not deceived, the devil is in their midst. Oh, how the enemy cruelly plays on our emotions. Remember, the battle to get you out of the will of God is a battle that is fought through your eye gate, ear gate, and smell gate, touch gate, taste gate, and it takes place in your soul. And here the devil is using this lady's deep emotional trauma to try and get her to give her credibility, her ministry, bow in voluntary humility to the Catholic that will then lead people to hell through his idolatrous practices. The devil is cruel. The devil is desperately cruel. God says we are to be separate. God's ways are higher than our ways. I cannot sit in judgment of this godly woman, but I can learn from her mistakes as well as I can from her successes. God was about to separate her from this influence for a season. And though a great and horrible trial was ahead, Darlene would emerge closer to her Savior than ever. You will see God's answer to her query of why this was happening on page 124 of the book when you read it. Um, fourth line from the bottom. And I encourage you to get the book and read it. In chapter 8, it immediately opens up uh, following these events with the beginning of a terrible chapter in Darlene's life. Now, up until the entrance of this Catholic priest, the book had an extremely powerful evangelical and scriptural basis. But the moment the Catholic Church enters the mix and she began to give credibility, the tone of the book changed. And it began to shift a little bit. After God gets done with chapter 8, it's back to where it was in the power of the Holy Spirit and in much assurance and in her marching on as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, she says that, well, the Japanese shock troops had struck her with terror because they were so cruel and wicked once she found out about the Kempietei. If I said that right, I don't know. Indonesian word. Once she found out about the secret police, she was no longer afraid of the shock troopers because the secret police were so cruel. I won't go into the details here. It isn't for everyone in this room. I'd recommend um, older young people and adults read the story. But she does a very good job writing the story in a way that doesn't glorify the suffering. Instead, it glorifies God. So the, to make it a long story short, she is selected to be examined by the secret police. And they called her, and that day, that morning, these secret police were morally debauched. They were wicked men. That morning, these people, these ladies, were very deprived of, they had nothing. They were given some fabric to make some basic work outfits with. They had some shorts and tank tops, basically, that they could work in. But they had some of their old clothes. And that morning, God led her to put on a dress. And she put on her dress with a great big full skirt on it. One of her most modest dresses. A lot of people wouldn't think much of that. She did, and I do. I think God knows what He's doing, don't you? And here came the secret police to take her to prison. They did let her run back and grab some stuff, but she wasn't going to get to keep it, and she wasn't going to get to change her clothes. She didn't have time to. So when she got to the barracks, she ran in, grabbed, a, grabbed her Bible, grabbed a house coat for one of her other American friends who the secret police had taken two weeks before, and she ran back to the secret police because if she didn't run back to them, it would be a lot worse for her than if she did. 
When she ran out the doors, she stepped, she says, into the arms of the mother superior, the Catholic nun. And this Catholic nun wrapped her arms around her and comforted her, she said, like a frightened little child. And hugged her and told her she would pray for her every day she was gone. And um, then she ran off into the clutches of the Kempietai. Now Satan's minister held her tightly and comforted her like a little child. When in reality, she was a warrior, a soldier of Jesus Christ who was dealing death blows to Satan's kingdom in some of the most trying circumstances that I've ever read about in my life. She wasn't a little child. She was a giant of the faith. But the devil wants the giants of the faith to humble themselves before his ministers of light. And so here came this condescending with the whole good cop, bad cop analogy. Here comes the good cop wrapping her up in her arms. What message is being sent to the rest of the prison camp? When that Catholic nun wraps her up in her arms, the Catholic nun is taking a place of superiority over her, comforting her as a little child. You say you're reading too much into that. I'm sorry if you see that. God's, get this, this you got to get this today. You see the path we're talking about, who are you following? God's path is not man's path. And God's path, he said, you became followers of the churches in Judea in the sufferings, not in authority or jurisdiction, but in sufferings. God's minister for this woman came to her in the form of secret police. Do you hear me today? The secret police were God's ministers? Yes. And she ran into the clutches of the secret police who were God's ministers to her to work a far greater weight of glory in her life. And the person that she thought was comforting her was a minister of Satan. You get that today. She said she needed it, that this Catholic nun did that, but God was about to teach her that she really didn't need it at all. He was going to teach her that he is sufficient. The serpent coils in the robes of the nun, whose very title is offensively laden with Nicolaitanism. Her comfort was a satanic attempt to lure and deceive Darlene into giving credibility to a witch whose prayers damn rather than help those who she prays for. A Catholic nun cannot get you to Christ because she cannot get to Christ herself. They do, they have denied the doctrine of Christ. And we read in the second epistle of John that if any man come to you and bring not the doctrine of Christ to not even let them into your house. And that applies to Catholics. Not to bid them Godspeed. Not to eat with them in 1 Corinthians because they are idolaters and they call themselves brothers. They claim to be saved. Well, they are open and flagrant idolaters. Now, as we're wrapping this up, you know we're over time. Who are you following today? Darlene Dibler Rose went on through the secret police prison camp with flying colors. And someday the younger ones of you will get to read it, but the older ones may get to sooner. But it was, a, it was such a difficult thing that words fail to express what she went through. The difficulty was absolutely insane. The cruelty of those people was insane. But God took her through it. And God protected her through it. And through it all, as you read her testimony, she grew in the grace and knowledge of God and in power of the Holy Ghost. And God delivered her in the end. As the Japanese secret policeman wrapped his hand around the sword handle to cut off her head, God whisked her out of there. 
at the last second and took her back to her people. But you'll never again find her giving deep credibility and honor to the Catholics because she was so in love with Christ that they went by the wayside. Who are you following today? Are you following people or are you following Christ? For sake of time, we won't read it, but in Galatians 2, 12 through 14, Paul followed Christ over Peter. Peter dissembled and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul called Peter out in front of everybody. He was following Christ. In Galatians 2.5, he said that certain came from Judea and tried to get them to be subject to the law of Moses. He said, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. This is absolutely critical. Mom, dad, pastor, leader, when you get out of Um, When you, out of natural human respect and politeness, yield to cultic heretics, the wolves now have free access to the lambs. And this is what has happened to the Church of America. The wolves have been given free access to the lambs in the effort to have unity. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, our text, it says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And what I missed in Mrs. Dibler's story, um, when she got to that prison camp, she asked the Lord, God, I've lost my husband. Why do I have to go through this? And by her own testimony, do you know what, what scripture God brought to her mind? By her own testimony on the fourth line of page 124, fourth up from the bottom. As he says my, something to the effect of, the son, my child, I chasten my children, I discipline my children. By her own testimony, God took her there to remove things from her life. That's chastening. To change her more into the image of God. Now, you might be tempted to be masochistic about that, which means to inflict punishment on yourself and say, oh, God was just trying to hurt her to make her a better Christian. God doesn't do that. God doesn't just hurt us to make us better Christians. When God allows chastening in our life, it's because there's something he is removing from us that has gotten in us that he can't get out anyway. Her confidence had begun to shift, and she had begun to follow that Catholic priest. And God whisked her out of that camp, out of her ministry, out of her mission field that he'd given her in that labor camp. And he placed her in a place of horror and terror that this world knows nothing of. Most of America knows nothing of. And in that place, he was to her a father, and she was to him a daughter. And she walked hand in hand with Christ through one of the darkest trials that has ever been recorded in human history. And on the other side of it, she was still hand in hand with her Savior. And so he brought her back into her mission field. And when she got back, she was almost immediately appointed commander of the whole 1,600 people. And now they were all following her as she followed Christ. Do you see how God did that? You see how God took her from where she was beginning to follow the wrong man. And he took her through a terrible trial so that she would follow him. And then he brought her back into that place of ministry. And she served there with flying colors. With power. In the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And ministered the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people that God had given her until the war was over. Who are you following today? We are to follow Christ and no other. This is absolutely critical. God wants you to establish your hearts. He wants you to know how to walk. And he wants you to become followers of us who preach the word in truth. I hope I'm an us. I want to be among that number. I strive to be. And of the Lord 
having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost.